Spoilers alert for Cat's Cradle. If you have not read Cat's Cradle and don't want to know anything about it before reading it, don't listen to this podcast. Please don't. Go read the book. Enjoy the book. And then come listen to the podcast. This podcast is for people who've read the book or don't care about us talking about the book. That's uh, that's better than the theme song that we uh, normally use. <laughs> Lied, Joe. How's it going? I'm good. I have a question. I always have a question now. Yes, I've I've noticed that your favorite childhood game. That's a, an interesting question because it's actually something that I've thought about recently. Because now that we've moved to Riverview, New Brunswick, we're surrounded by a bunch of family who mm-hmm. love to play games. So. We often go to one another's place and we play a wide variety of games, which has got me thinking about the games that I used to play as a youth. My favorite game I remember was something called Full House. You owned a hotel. It was like, you know, one of those board games and everybody had a hotel and Mm -hmm. you would try to get as many guests as possible in the hotel and just make as much money as possible. I don't even know anybody who knows about this game anymore, but I loved it. I've never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, we played all the usual ones like Clue and Monopoly and, you know, and I liked Clue and Sure, yeah. You know. Did you have like a like a a schoolyard game that you liked? Like Hopscotch or like I don't see you as a Hopscotch kind of guy, but Well, you know, I played them all. Yeah, of course. We all we all played them all, I hope. <laughs> sure. I was not averse to jumping rope with the girls, you know? Yeah. But ah, uh, boy. Well, I just you know, big neighborhood games like Red Rover. Oh, that's a good game. Yeah, that was great. And like, if you got a really good Red Rover going in the neighborhood, mm. that was a great game. Yeah. Yeah, we had a version of that in the winter. I can't remember what we called it. I think Ice Gauntlet or something like that, where everyone got in a line and one person tried to run the gauntlet. The game was to get through to the end of the icy gauntlet. And there was only there's only a couple guys in the in the schoolyard that could actually get through, and I was one of them. <laughs> I was I was tiny but huge. <laughs> <laughs> Little tank they called me. <laughs> and that's why you brought this all up, so that you could go back and boast about your <laughs> Yeah. But you got me thinking that like there's some other games that I really like to play when I was a kid. So yeah, it's fun. It's a fun topic. I mean, because there's the other games, of course, which are games like hockey and baseball. Sure. Yeah. Those are, well, those are sports technically. Oh, aren't they? but aren't they, what's the difference between a sport and a game? I don't know. I think a sport requires skill. And Red Rover doesn't require skill? No, that's just running. Oh, that's true. Yeah. There might be strategy. Yeah. Maybe in a game, there's strategy and in sport, there's skill. Okay. Something that we have to do uh, in the near future, we got to organize a big, uh, Red Rover game. Okay. <laughs> we'll play the CBC against Western University. We'll see who comes out of top. I like it. I'm going to recruit the football team, so good luck. Oh, yeah. There's not too many football <laughs> players at the CBC. All right. I'll, I'll be fair. I'll only recruit academics. <laughs> and I'll only recruit hosts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Tom Allen. would be great. <laughs> oh, come on. How old is Tom Allen at oh. this point? He's got to be at least 80. <laughs> yeah, that's not fair. That's no, 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 not he's not 80. He's like... You don't make Tom Allen play... Younger than me, probably. <laughs> 
Okay, but that's not why we're here today. It kind of is, though. Oh, yes, it is. That's right. We're going to talk about Cat's Cradle, which is a childhood game. That is true. And did you play Cat's Cradle? I never played Cat's Cradle once in my whole life. I have. Yeah. Several times, I remember. So I don't get the game. I don't really understand it. <laughs> well, now that you mention it, neither do I. But I remember okay, that good. I could I could make the cat's cradle, and there was something okay. about putting your hand in it, and then they undo the cat's cradle onto your hand or something. Oh boy! Yeah, like you're supposed to transfer it from one to the next. Is that the game? Boy, maybe we better look this up before we. Uh, uh, and obviously, the reason we're talking about this is because of the the Kurt Vonnegut book, Cat's Cradle. Yeah. And of course, in preparation for this podcast, I, I read that book and then, you know, reviewed it today, but didn't even think to take a look at the game itself. No, I didn't either. Uh, I did the same things you did. <laughs> I, I read the book. I thought about the book. I even looked up a little bit about the book because I thought I knew everything about it, but I don't. Okay, well, here's what it says. We've gone to everybody's favorite Wikipedia here. Cat's Cradle is a game involving the creation of various string figures between the fingers, either individually or by passing a loop of string back and forth between two or more players. Right. And it's a cooperative game, right? Well, either by yourself or with another player. Yeah. But there's no winners and losers in that game. I don't think so. Unlike the book where there were some definite losers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book had quite a few losers in it, to be honest. Yes. And we should explain, so, so we don't have a guest today. Because every now and then, we want to talk about pieces of art or works of art that, that we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. So early on, Mark had mentioned that he loved Kurt Vonnegut, and in particular, Cat's Cradle. So as I do, after we talk to guests on this podcast, I'm, some, I'm often inspired to go out and either read or listen to or, or watch whatever it is that they've been talking about. And so the book Cat's Cradle even though it hasn't, wasn't featured on one of our podcasts, it did come up. So I was inspired to go out and, and buy it. So I, and I read it a few weeks ago and thought it was a, a terrific book, not surprisingly, and thought, oh, this would be a great subject for, for the podcast that I could discuss with Mark. Because I know that Mark is fairly knowledgeable about uh, Kurt Vonnegut. That's right. There's a picture of me on of him on the wall <laughs> of me. I said of him. <laughs> uh, yeah, like uh, I love him as a writer. I love this book. It's funny though. I just reread it, and I don't have quite the same hagiography around this book that I used to. Hmm. It's 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 weird, and it's similar to you. Uh, when we talked about William Goldman, right? Got that right. I recently rewatched uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Okay. And the script is great. Like the script is fabulous. The writing is really good, but the movie has some flaws in it that I just didn't remember. Well, I, yeah, and I think we touched upon that in a previous podcast, how yeah. um, these works of art, they they change over time. But of course, it's not them that's changing. It's us that, that's changing. It's us, yeah. yeah. It's us. And, and it's, it's culture and society, too. So don't get me wrong. Everyone should read this book. It's a great book. It still is a great book. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it had been the first time that I read it, and, and I recognized the, the genius in it. It's, you know, yeah. the, the craft and the, and it, I was going to say that it, it holds up. I mean, I, I guess I can't really say that because 
I, I never had read it before, but I, I, yeah. I guess what it, it lived up to what I thought it would be when I read it. Yeah, I, I don't know that it holds up, but it certainly is as good as I thought it was when I read it the first time. The first time I think I was, I can't remember how old I was, but I probably wouldn't have been more than 16 or 17. So this for me was like, I, the first Vonica book I read was Breakfast of Champions. Okay. Which I don't know if you've read that one, no. but, but it's, it's, it's more of this. It's way more of this. Huh. Uh, so like this book, I think has 127 chapters or something like that. And they're, they're mostly like a page or two. Right. I couldn't quite figure out how long it was, but I'm guessing it's not much longer than 50,000 words or maybe 55,000 words. It's a really short book, but. Well, it's 202 pages in a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've got the old Dell, one of those Dell paperbacks. Okay. Like, like I don't even have the book that I read originally. It's just some paperback I picked up at some place at a secondhand store. Cause I recognized they didn't have the book anymore. Yeah. And I was reading it going, ah, oh, this book, I can't remember this book being so short, but it really is. But the reason it's so short the reason I think it's longer than it, it is, is that there's so much packed into it, right? Yes. Am I wrong on that? Or is that just my interpretation? A lot of ideas packed into it. And I mean, it doesn't cover a long time span. No, that's true. But it's fairly linear and sequential. And I, th I think it's uh, fair to say that every word, every chapter kind of counts. In yeah, the book. yeah. And I think I think Vonnegut's idea was that every chapter was like a joke. Yes, right? I yeah I read that yeah. he said that. And, yeah, and it does. I th I've seen some reviewers say you know every chapter is kind of like a little sketch, and then there's supposed to be a joke at the end of it. But they all are very interconnected. It's not they're not like um, yeah they're not like Monty Python. No, yeah they all serve a greater purpose. Of course, yeah, yeah they build they build on one another. And the other thing I think that I did recognize this time around that maybe I didn't recognize before is that he's really good at, at, at writing a character, like in just a few lines. Yes. Right. Like you kind of know who these people are very quickly. Yeah. And I want to touch on that a little later, some of the characters, but I yeah. think for the sake of the, uh, of the listener, we should step back maybe and, uh, and explain who Kurt Vonnegut is and then explain what this book is about. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, because you know, I, I actually practiced over over supper with uh, my my wife and I went out to uh, for uh, for pasta tonight at uh, an Italian restaurant. We're checking out all the restaurants in uh, in Riverview and uh, in Moncton, so we went to uh, Rosanna's. So I was telling her about the podcast tonight, and that we were going to be talking about Kurt Vonnegut, and she's like, "Well, who's who's Kurt Vonnegut?" <laughs> wow! So I explained because, like, to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the significant things about Kurt Vonnegut is that he was a soldier in the Second World War, yeah. and he was taken prisoner by the Germans, and him and his fellow soldiers were kept in Dresden. And, you know, those of you who know your Second World War history, the firebombing of Dresden was one of the uh, singular events of the Second World War, one of the most catastrophic events in, in human history, where the Allies just went over Dresden, to, you know, and... and bombed it into oblivion, mm -hmm. turned it into a one big firebomb. And Kurt Vonnegut lived through that. And so he survived being taken prisoner. And then he sur survived 
the firebombing of Dresden. And then the following day, the, the Germans made him and his fellow soldiers clean up the remains of, of Dresden. So, and this became like largely the, the subject matter of one of his novels, Slaughterhouse Five, which we could also uh, talk about. Yeah, that's one we should talk about at some point because yes. it's really his masterwork. It's his, it, in some ways, it's his best book. But I think that experience, I mean, I haven't read all of his work, but of his work that I'm familiar with, it seems to inform it to a larger or smaller degree. And I think it's certainly reverberating in this book, Cat's Cradle which is the way I interpreted it, and I think others have, is an indictment of science and the military industrial complex. I, I, I think I would agree with that. I, I, th I think I would have a slightly nuanced take on that uh, because I don't think he indicts science completely. Even in the book, there's a line like, science is the best thing we have. He does say that. At one point, right? Maybe he indicts it the way that Churchill indicted democracy. Yeah, it, the same way. It's like it's 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 not the best, but it's the best thing we have. Because his brother was a scientist, right? Yeah, no, I don't think he. I certainly didn't interpret yeah. that he was uh, anti-science, but he's he's anti-science uh, without any human considerations. Yeah, I think that's. I think the thing about Vonnegut is that he's a humanist first, right? He's he he only cares about humans, so. Things like science, military, corporations, those things don't matter insofar as they just make things harder for humans, <laughs> right? They're supposed to make human life easier, but as we're discovering, they make life harder. Yes. And we're, I think we're kind of like well along the road that Vonnegut would have really not been surprised by what he sees what's happening right now in terms of how the world is. Yes, because it's um, well. I mean, science has taken over for for and technology, for better or worse. And yes, and, and the, the way he references it in the in the book is, a, a general goes to a scientist and and asks him to create something for him, which which in the case of the book is, um, so that the, the Marines, the soldiers, they've got to storm the beaches. Sometimes the beaches are muddy. Can you come up with something to? To, to make, you know, to get rid of the mud. Right, make it easier. Yeah, to make things easier. To get over the mud. So then the yeah. scientist in the book, instead of thinking about the, the possible implications of what it is that he's creating, just takes it as a puzzle. And that is the nature of this scientist. What is the guy's name in the book? Honecker. Honecker. Felix Honecker. Is Honecker, the yeah. So Honecker yeah. is is yeah. really... Who, who also worked on the atom bomb. Yes, that's right. Because he's... right. That's the that's the whole start of the book, right? That the premise of the book is that the narrator uh, Jonah, as he describes himself, but his name's actually John. He says, you know, I'm writing this book about about the day they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Right. That's the premise of the novel, right? Is he? And that's how he gets introduced to all of these characters, the sons and daughter of of Honecker and all of the people that you meet in the book. He he meets them because of that MacGuffin, right? Because, you know, <laughs> the book never comes to anything. It doesn't matter at all. It's just like, that's the reason That's it right. And then the... The Vindit, if you will. <laughs> the vind yes, and we'll have to talk about that too. The religion in the... Yeah, uh, yeah. How do you pronounce that? Bokanism? Yeah. Bokanism? Bokanism? Bokanism, I would say. Yeah. I don't know. Bokanon in the, in the James James Taylor. Bokanon, Bokanon, Bokanon. 
Because that's one of the little yeah. sub themes of the book is is the the nature of religion through the uh, the, mm-hmm. the Bacchanism, which is which comes to be embraced by the the narrator. But and and to explain the the title of the book, Cat's Cradle. So when he asked the children of the scientist Honecker, "What was your father doing on the day that the atom was first wielded?" That's right. The answer was he was playing with Cat's Cradle. Yeah. Where's the cat? Where's the cradle? Yeah. Is that a metaphor then? Cat's cradle? I I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a metaphor for the, I don't know, the nothingness of <laughs> these sciences and all our devices. I That's what I took it as. I interpreted that as this particular scientist who represents a certain other breed of scientists that, that Kurt Vonnegut knew in his life. It's all about the mystery. It's all about the puzzle. It's about the the game, mm-hmm. you know, figuring it out to the exclusion of any other consideration. And I guess there is no solution to Cat's Cradle, right? It's just a shape. Yeah. So it it's just something which, you know, baffled or intrigued the, the scientist on that day. Much as when the general asked him to come up with something to help the soldiers in the mud, that was a puzzle that he had to solve. And then he solved it in a rather catastrophic manner. <laughs> Horrible way. <laughs> That's the creation of Ice-9. Yes, the substance <laughs> Ice-9. And apparently there actually is a configuration of ice molecules called Ice-9, but which has nothing to do with the Ice-9 in the book. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out because I was reading about that. It's like, oh, okay, so this is an idea that uh, Nobel scientists had at one point, so that it's possible for the molecules to line up this way, I guess. Yeah, I guess the story is that somebody had mentioned the possibility of doing that, of this Ice-9 to Jules Verne. Was it Jules Verne? Yeah, that's right. And then, no, no, H.G. Wells. H.G. Oh, H.G. Wells, H.G. Wells yes. Yeah. And he didn't want to use it. And then there was someone else who could have had a chance at it, and I can't remember his name. And then he died, and he left the story with Vonnegut's older brother, who told Vonnegut the story about it. It's like, well, Vonnegut's like, well, everyone else is dead, so I get to keep this one. That's right. This is my idea now. Yes, and he certainly uh, used it to to good effect. Yeah, he did because it's it's actually quite devastating the idea that, and the idea really is complicated because a sliver of ice nine, so this ice that's made out of just H two O molecules, it's in a sense contagious, right? So any water that it touches then also turns into ice nine. So it's almost impossible to contain. Yeah, and then we should explain that ice nine basically is ice at a solid at room temperature. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the quibbles I had on the rereading of this book was at some point it's mentioned actually twice that the the melting point is over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, right? I I, I don't recall. I will take your word. I'm I'm almost positive. It's it's well it's 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 a crazy high heat. So yeah, it would have to be in a furnace or something before it would start to melt. But the characters do melt it. Exactly. That's my point. That's my continuity thing that I spotted. Wow. You know, 40 years later after reading well, it the yeah. first time, I'm like, wait a minute, that can't work because the <laughs> melting point is this. Boy. Now, I, I, the one thing I wanted to know was that I couldn't figure out or find before we started talking is that apparently this book had a real sort of underground popularity to it. And this is one of his early books, right? It was 63 when this came out. The book was quite influenced by the the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think. 
Like, I don't think it's an accident that half the book takes place on San Lorenzo, which is a, a fictitious island in the Caribbean. That's right. Like Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. Like, much like Cuba, but even poorer than Cuba, really. I mean. Yeah. It's supposed to be the poorest nation in the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing on the island. There's no reason to for any people to be there. That that was interesting to me when I thought thought about that. But then also, this book had a real following in the hippie culture. Because of the Bacchanism? I think the Bacchanism was why. The Bacchanism, or however it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how it's actually pronounced. Yeah. It, I, I want to say Bacchanism because it sounds better to me, but... <laughs> I'm okay with that. It reads Bacchanism just as well. I think that I, some of the ideas in that religion, I can see why they were appealing. Well, for example, the uh, idea of a group of people who feel that they're related in some way. But they're really not. Yeah. Like the classic example is the Hoosiers of Indiana. That's a gonfaloon. A gonfaloon. Yeah. yeah I love that a idea. Gonfaloon. So the the premise, one of the main premises of Bokanism or Bokanism is the idea that we're all part of what's called a carass. It's it's a group of souls that are connected. And I'm gonna to try to describe Bokanism. So the idea of Bokanism, it's first of all a made up religion. Yep. As they all are. <laughs> okay, that's a whole other podcast. And it's a it's a satire of religion, basically. But but as religions go, this one's kind of like cool because the guy who invented it invented it knowing it was just a bunch of FOMA, a bunch of harmless lies. Right. That's what FOMA means. Yeah. And the premise is that we're all part of a carass, which is just a group of individual souls that are connected and they're kind of revolving around these things that they call wampeters. <laughs> Such great names. So a wampeter is basically the thing that the carass is trying to achieve at the moment. And there's always two wampeters in a carass. So <laughs> one wampeter is waxing and one is always waning. So, you know, there's always something we're trying to achieve. It's one of two things. And that's the true connection you have with other souls in the world. Whereas the world tends to see these other false connections. Like, you know, I teach at Western University. So therefore, I'm a part of Western University. That's a gonfaloon. I think I got that right. I don't know. I think so. I think so. I think it's one of the greatest charms of the book. And one could easily have written this book and left all of that out. This whole, because it's seeded through with these ideas of, of Bokanism. Yeah. I don't know that she could write this book without that. I think it's the central theme of the book. The story is Jonah discovering who his caress is. He's gone his whole life without knowing anybody in his caress. And then it all comes together around this wampeter of Ice Nine. And he learns who everyone is that he's supposed to be interacting with. I agree that the, the book wouldn't be anywhere near as successful without that. But I think it's the genius of Kurt Vonnegut that like a lesser talent might have written this book with just the events that happen, mm. you know, the invention of Ice Nine, going to the Caribbean island, and then the strange confluence events that result in Ice Nine being unleashed on the world. But it's the whole inclusion of Bokanism that elevates it, that takes it all to another level so that you can appreciate it at that level that really kind of comments meaningfully on the absurdity of life. Yeah. 
through the events that take place in the book. I think we're saying the same thing, just in different ways. I think we can <laughs> no doubt. politely agree. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, because I, I think that is the true charm of this book, is the jokes are pretty good. They're not as good as they used to be. I thought this was much funnier mm. when I was younger, but that's partially just a matter of culture, right? Like I think one of the characters, the younger brother, the younger Honaker brother is a, a little person. And I, I frankly had trouble reading some of the the descriptions of the behavior around Newt. That was just the uh, Newton Honaker was his name like how people treated him. Well, that is the one element of the book that, yes. I mean, earlier I said that I, I felt like it, the book holds up like as a work of art, Yeah, but it, yeah, it doesn't age quite as gracefully. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There was a term used to refer to that character, which is not an accepted term, I think yes. anymore. Yeah. And I don't think I'm overly sensitive, but I was like, ah, uh, yeah, I just hard reading that word the same way when you read, Mark Twain now, even though the words was appropriate when he wrote it, it's not anymore. And it's hard not to go, ah, that's hard to read. But I wouldn't change it and I wouldn't censor it. And I wouldn't say, don't read the book because the word's not good. Because so much of the rest of the book is so humanist that if Kurt Vonnegut was alive today and you say, would you, you know, would you do a second edition and change some of those descriptions? I'm sure he would say yes. Yes, I agree. Whereas Mark Twain probably would not. And yeah, maybe not. Yeah. But I mean, they are part of the same continuum, Mark Twain and, and Kirk Vonnegut. They're both humorists. They both uh, are satirists. They both are cynics in the sense that they think the world should be better than it is. Yes. And I think that the difference in the, in this particular case with that, that word is that the word in Cat's Cradle doesn't matter. It could be a different word. It's just a word that is aged out of yeah. use, yeah. I think. Whereas the word in Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn is, well, now we're getting into dangerous territory. <laughs> well, I don't know. How can we continue this conversation without using the words? I'm not going to use the words. I, no. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I, I think, actually, if you talk to little people, I think the word that is used in Cat's Cradle might also be a similar word, but it's just, just a different population that we don't hear about as much. We might just need to cut this whole thing out, but that's fine. Well, I don't know. I think stuff like this is uh, where it gets a little dangerous. I don't know if we want to avoid the dangerous stuff. Because no, here, I don't either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because here's the, the interesting thing. the Regarding the, the word, and, and I'm sure anybody can guess what word we're talking about to refer to a person of small stature. Yeah. So we had a guest on the podcast recently, John Corcelli, who wrote a book about George Carlin, the comedian, who was famous for being inflammatory in his in his language. And before we had John Corcelli on the show, I, I read up a little bit about some of Carlin's work. And in one of them, he uses that that word as, as well. And he uses it because he finds it a funny word, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wrote a review of John Corcelli's book because I love the book. And wanted to get a review up on Amazon because any author needs yes. to have reviews up on Amazon. And if so, if you want to support an author, go and write a review. So I was trying to support John Corcelli. And in the first draft of my review, I used that word, quoting Carlin, thinking that I was trying to make a point about how you know much of a, a disturber George Carlin was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah. And felt very uneasy about it, about using the word. 
and then ultimately went back and took it out. And George Carlin would probably roll over in his grave. Go, oh, Joe, come on. Yeah, but at the same time, why, why do you want to hurt people when you don't have to? Like, yeah. Because that's, that, that's for me, like, I, I wouldn't have expected George Carlin to purposefully hurt people. Yeah, he would, I, I think. Yeah. In that case, he would. Well, he did, <laughs> you know? Yeah, he did. I guess he did. So. Yeah. And I, you know, but, I love George Carlin and I appreciate his sensibility, but I could not be George Carlin. No, I don't think I could be either. And I, I, I really don't think Kurt Vonnegut would either. I think that he is too much of a humanist to to intentionally use a word that would be hurtful to people, especially the people he's talking about. Because in the case of, of Newt, like he obviously has a lot of affection for that character. Well, here's, here's another question. And he's always concerned about that character, I think, from the perspective of other people not taking the character seriously because of his stature. Is there a reason why that particular character is in the book? Well, there's obviously a reason, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, I, I think there is a reason. Yeah. Like I, I think in some senses, he's the child substitute. That is how the rest of the characters see him and treat him except for Jonah. I don't right. think Jonah does. So I think he's, he's the child in this scenario because there's no children in this book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even though this is about the end of the world. And that's one of the things he should be most concerned about is the children. Well, in fact, the woman that, that Jonah loves, there's an unpleasant scene near the end of the book. That is, yeah, that's a really unpleasant scene. Yes. That actually is actually maybe a trigger warning. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. but the response from his love interest is uh, we are not bringing children into this, yeah. this world under these circumstances. Yeah. This is not the time to have children. Yeah. 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 Cause it's the end of the world. Nobody's, nobody's surviving this for very long. Yeah. Yeah. The world's turned to ice and that's it. It's over, which is exactly what happens in a nuclear war too. I'd like to point out. That like that's this is an allegory for nuclear war. It's oh when yes. There's a, when there's a war, that's it. It's it's over. Uh, even if people survive the war, the civilization's over. The Earth is over, in, in any way that we understand. I mean, yeah, the Earth will survive and go on. There will be life again, probably, but it won't be us. It won't be conscious life, probably. No, no. Although some you know small life forms. Oh, maybe in a couple more billion years, there will be. I mean, yes. but, but, you know, f for us, it's over. And for civilization, is it's over. And for consciousness for a while, it's probably over. Yeah, and I think so. In that sense, it is a very much a, a cautionary tale that scientists need to be careful, especially if they're working with and or for the industrial military complex and, and yes. what they, they work on and, and create. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, we still obviously, and this always gets me, the the amount of nuclear weapons that are on this this planet, you know, you don't, you don't hear many people talk about it so much anymore, I don't think. It, it's changed a little bit, I think, with the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And the, the nuclear saber rattling. Well, and the, they just moved the doomsday clock up again. We're closer than we've ever been. Yeah. Yeah. We're 90 seconds from now. I, do I agree with it? I don't 
totally agree with it, but what they're doing is trying to make people realize that what's going on in the Ukraine could spill out of control very easily. And as you say, everyone has nukes or not everyone, but there's enough nukes in the world to destroy everything several times over. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately one of Kurt Vonnegut's main points. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. It's moronic, right? It is. Like no, nobody in their right mind. You know, you and your, your house and my and my house, like we would not have weapons in our house that could kill everybody. It, it's, you don't even consider it, right? So why do we have that in our human house, earth? You exactly, know? yeah. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. I, I actually, I'm glad we're talking about this because I really do feel like this is something that we should be really talking about because yes. we should be getting rid of these goddamn weapons. We don't need them. <laughs> we really don't need them. There's There's no point to them except to maybe destroy ourselves. And maybe some people like the idea of death hanging over the entire planet. Well, that goes back to Bokanism, right? Like the, at the end of the book, Bokanon, he does make an appearance at the very end of the book, yeah. right? And he's written a poem and he says, it's his, it's his suicide poem basically, or his Calypso, they called them Calypsos, I think in the book. And he's like, I'm going to end the world. And he's, talking about his world but in a real way that's what nuclear weapons are it's it's a death wish it's a, it's a collective death wish it's like well i can't imagine what happens after i'm gone so therefore i want there to be something that ends everything i think it's partially why as a culture we're so fascinated with with post-apocalyptic stories is this idea that maybe there's a recognition that we are going to die or that I'm going to die. And therefore, why would there be anything after me? And that's what Bokanon is saying at the end, right? He's like, he's saying, well, I'm going to destroy the world, i.e. I'm going to kill myself because that is the world. To him. It's a rather solipsistic view, but. But it's true, I think, for most people. Well, but then, I mean, there are the people who work to create a legacy that lives on beyond them. Yes. But that's how long is that going to last? <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's maybe a handful of people who've mastered more than a thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't really matter either. What matters is the here and now, what you do in the moment. That's, that's, that's where Bokanism is, is at its best, I think is what it's like talking about that. But it doesn't really do that very well. Yes. Yeah. I think of Ozymandias. Yeah, of course. Ozymandias are, you know, the world is not as permanent as you think. Hmm. So, and that I think is, uh, so th this is Kurt Vonnegut with this book and with his other work. Well, he's got us talking about it, you know, he's got us talking yeah, about, yeah. Uh, which is yeah. the point, I think. And it's still quite relevant. I mean, it's still a relevant conversation we're having here. Well, it's it's relevant uh, right up until we get this sorted out, which we completely haven't. <laughs> no, we have not. <laughs> but I, I I'm hopeful that we will. Well, how is it that like surely ninety nine percent of the or maybe uh, you know ninety eight percent of the population of the world understands the stupidity of having nuclear weapons in the world, but yet we still have them. What? <laughs> Why is that? Well, I think it's very hard to turn the ship around. I think that's the problem is that neither side. Well, I, I don't even know there's sides anymore. Like there's so many nations that have weapons 
of mass destruction. And more acquiring them all the time. And, and wanting to acquire them, because from some perspectives, when the Ukraine war started, I was like, well, it's really too bad they they gave up their nuclear weapons, you know, when the Soviet Union split up, like there's that big agreement, right? They used to have a whole bunch of nuclear weapons there. If they'd had them. Yeah. A lot of people probably felt <laughs> right? the same thing. And I, I would have to admit for, for myself, who's completely opposed to nuclear weapons, even I had a, a little moment of, oh, gee, yeah, too bad they, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen because that would have spilled out of control very quickly because they probably would have needed to use them or wanted to use them. So I, I don't know. I just, I just think we should get rid of them because they are an existential threat. It's something that we can control. There's, there's a bunch of existential threats we can't control. Most of them we can't, but some of them we can, and we don't seem to want to control any of them. So to answer your question, 99% of us don't want to live from paycheck to paycheck either. But we do. But that's what happens. So why is that? Well, I think in the case of uh, nuclear weapons, not enough people have read uh, Kurt Vonnegut. That's true. They should all read the book. Or not enough people like Kurt Vonnegut not that I would wish this on anybody, lived through something like the Dresden firebombing, which informed your perspective. That's true, but I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. No. And sometimes that goes the other way too, right? Yes, I suppose. Yeah, I think sometimes it goes the other way. So let me ask you this as we wrap up discussion of this book. Do you still like the book? I do. I still really like the book. I, it's still very charming. I really like, like I said, the character sketches. I really like them a lot. I was a little bit annoyed at how many there were <laughs> at one point because it's such a short book and there's probably like 30 characters that are pretty well drawn. Yeah, yeah. And they, they all don't pay off. So as a writer, I was a little annoyed by like, okay, why am I learning about this person? And it's like, okay. But for the most part, I really loved rereading the book and I really enjoyed being with Kurt Vonnegut again. And this, remember, this wasn't his... This was a fairly early book of his. This was only his fourth book. So he hadn't kind of mastered this sort of sketch, cartoony kind of, it's almost like a cartoon novel in a sense. Hmm. Like each, remember he was, people might not know this, but he he liked to draw right. and he draw cartoons and he kind of could convey a huge amount of meaning with a really simple line drawing. And that's what this novel is like. Each chapter is like a simple line drawing, but there's so much in it that you kind of get more information than there actually is. Well, there is a weight to it. There is a depth to it. It, yeah. it is more than a, yeah. I, I completely take your point, but it, it is yeah. more than just a cartoon. Because I think we've all read, oh, you know, yeah, those no, books. I'm not saying it's cartoonish. I'm saying yeah. it's, it's, it's like a dense piece of artwork that's embedded somehow in the cartoon, right? Like it, if you look at it just at the surface, it's a cartoon drawing, but then you look at it a bit longer, like do one of those magic eye things. And suddenly there's like four dimensions, there's space and yeah. time. And you can see the characters both directions. It's like a, it's like a Calvin and Hobbes versus a Hagar the Horrible. <laughs> okay. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like if Calvin and Hobbes was a Dostoevsky novel. Hmm. I wow. Okay. That's yeah. That's, that's basically Vonnegut's book. That's what it is. It's like 
on the surface it's nice simple clean drawings but then there's like this all this i completely get it yeah 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 like on the surface is like the tip of the iceberg but systems there's cultures there's human emotion there's intelligence yeah i can't put it any better than than you just put it yeah so everyone should go read it yes well thank you for introducing it to me oh well i'm glad you read it thank you any final thoughts then on the book no just just i think everyone should have a go at it yeah there's maybe a couple words that are gonna be upsetting but power through it because i think the the whole book is a is gonna be illuminating and help you kind of frame modern life i mean we're still dealing with these issues okay there you have it kurt vonnegut cat's cradle thank you mark thanks joe listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to are artists of some description, and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy. And if you enjoyed it, maybe you could review it for them. Oh, yeah. But maybe us too. Yeah, you know what? Us too. It wouldn't hurt. They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line. Sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jinx. Oh yeah, you that I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word. <laughs>